0: Every year I sit down and I write my resume every year, even though, as you can see from my resume, I rarely leave a company. I'm there for a while, but I think that it's important to make a conscious decision on a regular basis of why you're there, what you want to contribute, where you're contributing to the outcomes of the company and where you're adding yourself.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Christy, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: All right. So you've heard some of the episodes. I start them all the same way. Tell me what I butcher. When I butcher it, you tell me. We'll go from there. Deal? Sounds great. Okay. So you got your BA in math from St. Mary's. Then you went to HP. You were a software engineer for four years. You went to Walmart, spent four years there. First in biz dev, then as a software developer for three and a half years. Then you went to Harvard Business School where you met Dan Shapiro, previous guest who introduced us. Then you went to Bain for seven years. I think Dan was also at Bain, is that right? Correct, Okay. And you spent seven years there as consultant for the first four years, manager for the last three. And then you joined Bloomreach in 2011 and you've spent, what year is now, 2020, 10 years there. 10 years, 10 years, first as a product manager, then as the head of mobile and search, nav and personalization, three years doing that. Then as the chief customer officer, seven years doing that. And then chief operating officer, two years doing that. You're also on the board of Racing Hearts, and you are a Girl Scout volunteer. Correct. Did I get that all right? Yeah,
0: you got that all right. Okay,
1: so last night I was sitting in my living room and I was reading, I was like, oh, that's weird. She has a BA in math. And so I read specifically what you did in school. And I mean this in the most endearing way. You're like a super nerd. So she graduated magna cum laude in, in mathematics with a minor in computer science. and. I I started laughing out loud when I read this. Your senior thesis was the chaotic properties of the the Julia Julia set. set. And I was like, what the hell is the Julia set? So I looked it up. And I actually didn't understand any of these words. So it says, in the context of complex dynamics, a topic of mathematics, the Julia set and the Pfau2 set are two complementary sets defined from a function. Is that even an appropriate definition of what this is?
0: That's a fantastic definition. <laughs> I and made that it's up myself. More commonly known as like as a fractal, and so it's definitely it's a complex function, but it's a fractal and all of my life I've been obsessed with patterns. And so it's just another form of a pattern. And I I think functions are that way too. And so yes, everyone at St. Mary's needs to do a senior thesis. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, the topic I selected. So I could really dive into patterns.
1: So I went further down the rabbit hole of who is this woman that I'm about to talk to and why does she have such like a unique and distinct set of experiences? You have a patent, is that right? Or you're in a patent. And it is, the, the patent is search with auto suggest and refinements. Correct. Tell me about that. Yes,
0: yes. So that's one of <laughs> that is one of the products that that we have at Bloomreach. So early on in my time with Bloomreach, it was the second product that we were building. We'd started the company from a SEO perspective and had an SEO product. Recognized that the algorithms that we were building for <laughs> SEO are highly applicable okay. for internal search yep. or site search, and so we put together a small team. It was one of our first kind of big bets to diversify the company, get into a second product line. And we worked with a team of engineers to really build on-site search. So if you go to any of the major retailers and put a search query into the box, that's our algorithms powering that. And that is what the patent is about.
1: Oh, this is going to be my mother's favorite episode. This is exciting. So then I have a few questions on your background. Then we can just jump right into it. I was talking to Shapiro, asking for dirt. Obviously, he didn't give me any, and you two are your families or friends. He said that at Harvard, you were the official ed rep, where people who needed to vent about professors went to you. What does that mean? Is that right?
0: That's part of the job, potentially. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so every section at HBS has an ed rep. Okay. And your job is to liaison between the professors with the section. That's part of the job. But my favorite part of the job was I viewed it as your job was to make sure that your section was successful as possible. So if anyone was struggling in a class, right, you have a variety of different people and in the section, mm-hmm. a huge diversity from countries, from functions that they did, from types of companies, mm-hmm. from industries. So all of you are going to be good at different subjects and and probably weaker at other subjects. So how do you take that section of people, connect as many people as possible to make sure the people who, that are experts in finance are there for the people who've never taken finance before and vice versa, and create this network of a section that helps each other succeed. So part of that may be going to the professors and saying, hey, okay, we have a whole section of people who are moving way too fast. Actually, we're using terms that that some of us haven't even studied before? And how can I get different section mates or friends connected
1: to be tutors to each other? Hmm. I would have been the one that needed all the help. Well, I would never have been in HPS, but had I been there, I would have been the one that you would be surrounding with unlimited resources to really make sure that Juven doesn't screw this thing up. Okay, the other question that I had is that, He said you were in your consultant days at Bain. You were on some pretty gnarly cases, and that got my head spinning. I'm like, "What does gnarly mean? What does a gnarly case mean?" I can only imagine.
0: Oh gosh, I adored my time at Bain. Actually, one of the hardest places I've ever left, because the people are so smart and intelligent. Also, means that you are picking up some very complicated strategic topics with really large companies and organizations, and so. Gnarly can be everything from, I was on on one project where we were really looking into corn storage market sizes, right? At the time, no data existed on the market size for corn storage. And so that project ended up being quite gnarly because how do you get that data? You've really got to look at the size of the market to figure out how this company is going to grow right? And so how do I get that data? It's a lot of primary research, a lot of feet on the street, talking to people, doing cold calls, trying to get as much data as you can, and then packaging it in a way that someone can look at that and say, yeah, that actually seems reasonable. I haven't seen this before. That's how I would go about it. And so gnarly, I think, in a lot of cases were areas where there was no data, nothing existed, but not having an answer is also unacceptable.
1: So on the corn storage market sizing. Play that tape backwards for me. So that's the problem. What do you do? You fly to Middle America and what did you do?
0: Well, fortunately, I was already in the Midwest. Yeah. So actually instead of flying everywhere, picture driving everywhere.
1: Okay. Through cornfields.
0: Through cornfields, yeah. sure. Yeah. But a lot of it was yes, you know, sitting down meeting with with as many experts as you could in that, but also just cold calling farms, ethanol providers, people who knew the industry and could give you a sense for volumes that you were dealing with, and then doing research on pricing and, and trying to actually come up with what is the what is the actual revenue size of this market. So you're looking at competitors, you're looking at suppliers, you're looking at what's going on in the various different industries from feed for animals to ethanol to farming and food and seeing what you can kind of triangulate in there.
1: And how long did it take you to get the answer of the corn market size?
0: If I remember, it was a three-month project and we got to that answer in
1: one month. In a month. And you're doing that on behalf of a client? Yes. Okay. What a crazy, awesome job. And, And by the way, I'm asking these questions for a specific reason because this pattern of okay, Christy, here's our problem and go figure it out, continues to show up throughout your career. And so I'm kind of setting it up in a, I wish, more dramatic way. Okay, so this one's gonna be personal. You don't have to answer. What is your favorite Girl Scout cookie?
0: Oh gosh, that is not only personal, but it's controversial type <laughs> so, of question. So before you like... answer,
1: I just want you to tread carefully. So for my friends listening, I am a cookie monster and I am a Girl Scout cookie monster and I only have one flavor, so don't pick wrong.
0: Oh, exactly. For people, there is a right answer. Yeah. And that's why I'm, that is, this might be the hardest question you asked me yeah, today. Yeah, that's right. <sighs> My favorite Girl Scout cookie is a frozen Thin Mint. Oh,
1: <laughs> I knew this was going to go well. Oh, Okay. So can I give you a story about me and Thin Mints? Absolutely. We have a very complex relationship throughout my life. So when I was in sales selling, I had an SE who was the man. And he saved my butt like a million times over. And I felt like I owed it to him to do something. And his daughter was a Girl Scout. Marco, if you're listening, love you. And so the first year we did great together. And he said, hey, I wanna teach my daughter how to sell and what to do. And can you buy some Girl Scout cookies? And I was like, yeah, warm lead, great, buy from Jubin. And I wanted to be her whale. I wanted to be the one, I wanted to make a statement. And I wanted it to be the one that, you know, made a dent in her quota. So I told him not knowing how many Thin Mints she would actually have, I'll take all of her Thin Mints. And he said, are you sure? And I said, of course, it was like 150, 200 boxes of Thin Mints. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It was actually bad. And so I don't want to say I'm addicted to Thin Mints, but I love them. Like I literally love them since I was a little kid. And so anyway, she comes over with the entire family. Like, it's just a family affair. They come to my apartment in San Francisco.
0: Well, because you did buy 150 boxes. Yeah, it, of, was,
1: it was what? Of cookies. It was $700 of cookies or something. It's like, it was it's like actually repulsive. And so, yeah, they come over and, and they present me. You know, I thought it was going to be a parade for my Thin Mints. And so they thank me, they write me a letter. It was super cute. So, anyway, now I have a problem where I don't, I don't know what to do with the cookies. And so I could, there's only so many I could give away, give to my friends, whatever. And so at one point I probably gave immediately 50, 70 boxes as fast as, and nobody wants these, right? Cause everybody knows that if they're sitting in the house, you're going to eat them.
0: You're absolutely going to eat them. And
1: All. Jubin also knows that, right? And so I was trying to get rid of them as fast as I could. I got rid of like, again, maybe 50. I sold a hundred boxes. And this is an apartment in San Francisco. So I don't have like a garage where I can hide them. So, There was, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm sharing this. There was a mountain of Thin Mints in my bedroom. They were stuffed under my bed. There was some in the living room. And anytime I have anybody, (laughs) anytime I would have anybody come over, I would have a bowl of Thin Mints, which is like the weirdest thing to have. I would send them home with a Thin Mint, like as a a goodie bag. So uh, anyway, um, Girl Scout cookies.
0: Girl Scouts love you. (laughs) They love you. It is one of my favorite volunteer activities is working with the Girl Scouts, but especially during cookie season Mm. because it's go-to-market training for these kids. You go through everything from setting goals Mm. to budgeting to sales approaches and to see these kids go through everything from let me set up a booth and how do I approach people about selling and how do I handle no. Yeah which you get repeatedly, to a pandemic where you move online and try to figure out how to do marketing online. Selfishly, it's an amazing reminder each year of the basics with sales and seeing a group of people who handle no's so well and don't hear no in the sales cycle. It's it's like a yearly reminder of the energy and excitement you can get when you close that deal to resilience of, I just heard a hundred no's, but then someone came up and bought, well, not 150 boxes, but you know, maybe 10.
1: So it's funny, even talking about this now, when I was in middle school, I had a contest and juvenile contest, it's an ugly thing because anytime there's a contest where you can have a winner and a loser, I can't lose. And so, It was gift wrapping. And whoever sold the most gift wrapping paper got something, something stupid. Anyway, long story short, I couldn't sell any of them because I was terrified to go around knocking on doors. So my mom bought all of it. She bought all of the gift wrap from me. To this day, I shit you not, she still wraps our Christmas gifts with that gift wrap. She had to buy, poor woman, so much. I can't believe I'm sharing these stories. So okay. I have a complaint, if it's okay, with the Girl Scout organization. Could you please just feed this back to them? So I went to Chicago and I was asking my buddies, I lived there for a year, and I was asking my buddies, where are the Girl Scouts? You know, this was pre-COVID. Like, where are they? What corners are they on? And they're like, dude, you could buy it on Amazon. And that really bummed me out because now you can buy them on Amazon. Like, isn't that taking away from the point of a Girl Scout on the corner selling cookies?
0: Absolutely. It is, right? Absolutely. okay. It's the experience
1: plus the cookies.
0: Like that's such
1: a cop out. Don't sell it on Amazon. Don't let me buy it on Amazon. That's like half the fun. The
0: great news is now Girl Scouts has gone digital with their cookie sales. So if you want to move into the digital, yes.
1: Okay.
0: Direct to consumer, but you can skip the shipping by having a local Girl Scout deliver the cookies to you.
1: Okay. All right. Good to know. Marco, don't worry. I, I promise I'll still buy from the Genovese family. Okay, I have another question. I promise we're going to get into the the good stuff here, although I'd I'd argue this is the good stuff. Your daughter, when you go through your Twitter, there's a bunch of old things from you at the U.S. Olympic trials for gymnastics. And your daughter is like a very high achieving or was a very high achieving gymnast. I think she went to Stanford to do this. This Is this right? Am I I
0: making this up? She went to camps. She's still younger.
1: Yeah, okay. And she's still like very competitive gymnast.
0: She is very competitive. She may get that from me as well. Yeah. But yes. Okay,
1: so, so that's the question that I had. So my mother is also very competitive. I guess the question that I have is, is it innate or is it taught? That competitiveness. And how do you manage that as a competitive, overachieving mother, knowing that your daughter is also that way? How do you nurture that? How do you think about that?
0: It's really tricky and I think individually specific type of approach and question. I mean, one is, can it be taught? And I, I definitely think that it's situational. And so in certain situations, are are you competitive? And in others, do you have the passion and drive to even be competitive about that topic? And so I, I do think it it kind of wanes and changes. But I think the important thing is to nurture the competitiveness, but in a fun, collaborative, impactful way and not have it go so far that it's about the competition and, and you, but about how do I make this fun and in a way that brings as many people together as possible? So for example, in gymnastics, being competitive, but as a team, how do you celebrate the wins? How does your competitiveness actually Push other people forward, and how do you celebrate when they win, and and maybe you don't? Or, you know, at Bloomreach, every year we do a food drive at Thanksgiving. It gets very competitive. Mm. Lots of trash talking that may mostly come from me. With the <laughs> with the end result that honestly everyone wins, yeah. right? It's a food drive, and how do you make it fun, collaborative? competitive in a way that you achieve a better result than you would have had you just ask everyone, hey, bring in some food. You can end up with a better result than you had initially thought you could.
1: Yeah, I'm not a father at some point, I, I suspect I will be. And I think about myself in those shoes. And I think that if my son or daughter loses some sporting event, I feel like I will feel like I lost that sporting event. I will be in it with you as competitive as you are feeling like we lost together. And so I might be as or more beat up than she is after that soccer game, whatever it is. So anyway, it's something that I, that I think about. I want to make sure I'm not helicopter dad, but it, that seems to be a healthy balance.
0: I think it's definitely a great leadership trait to look at as well, right? As you mentioned, you know, your teams are all working towards a goal and whether it's a competitive goal or it's part of the goal of the company, what you want to do is make sure that, that you also feel the same way the team does, as you just said. So if the team misses their goal, right, they're empathizing with them for sure on what happened, learning from it, helping the team work through that, as well as celebrating the successes when things go well. I view it as a very analogous topic on leadership, as well as just how do you work with everyone on helping them achieve more than maybe they would have achieved individually?
1: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I would also put the Girl Scout on the corner hustling cookies in the same category. Okay. One more question on background. You said you loved Bain. One of the hardest things that you did was leave Bain. You left Blaine to go to Bloomreach. Bloomreach was a 20-person company at the time. Walk me through that decision-making process. Like, What did that look like? The opportunity cost was pretty high. Like, Is it pretty cushy job at Bain. It's prestigious. And then you're going to a tiny company that nobody's ever heard of. How'd it happen?
0: Yeah. So at the time I'd been with Bain Chicago for seven years and I really enjoyed the work, challenging work, new challenging problems every time you're on a project. Some of the best people I've ever worked with, not just from a intelligence perspective, but definitely an environment of, you need help, I'm there for you. I'd have colleagues who would help me on projects and they weren't even on the project, right? So just this amazing culture with high performance. And what happened is, is you spend enough time there. It's not what I had intended to do with my career is be a strategy consultant. I'd really wanted to operate. And so... At some point, it was about each year, I would reflect on what am I contributing to the company? How is this contributing to where I see myself longer term? And you hit that pivot point where you're making a decision in your career on the opportunity cost is only going to get greater if I continue to stay. And now is the time that I need to pull up and say, you know what, I'd always wanted to get back to technology I'd always wanted to get back to building. My background was in software engineering and and building. And so now's the time to make the move. And so called up a lot, did a ton of research, called many friends in various different industries to get kind of that short list of companies. And I was looking for a company that was established but private, that I could come in, I could have an impact with, help build the next stage. And then I got introduced to Bloomreach which had just raised Series B, much smaller company at the time than I had intended to join, but a ton of potential and an amazing leadership team that I felt like I could learn from. So I took all the criteria that I'd set aside from what industry or type of company I'd want to join, threw it completely out the window and joined as an individual contributor owning a set of accounts onboarding customers, doing quality assurance, doing renewals, whatever it took to help grow and build the company.
1: I also sometimes get antsy, you know, like I like operating. You know, we're in a really nice boardroom right now and it's fancy and all those things and it's it's great, but I also like getting my hands dirty. And I actually think I have kind of the perfect balance right now, but how many times through that 7 years Did it all kind of culminate in the last year, if that makes sense? You know, you'd work on these amazing cases with these amazing companies. You have so much field vision over great opportunities at that point. And you're working with great people who are then going to great opportunities, Dan being one of them and many, many others. And so I actually think there's probably a lot of shiny objects. Yeah. How'd you think about that?
0: That's a great question because I think sometimes it can culminate into a particular moment or point. But For me, it's an every year decision. So every year I sit down and I write my resume. Every year, even though, as you can see from my resume, I rarely leave a company. I'm there for a while. But I think that it's important to make a conscious decision on a regular basis of why you're there, what you want to contribute, where you're contributing to the outcomes of the company and where you're adding yourself, right? If you pull up each year and take a look at that and say, what do I want my journey to be? What do I want the company's journey to be? How am I contributing to that? If you decide to stay, you've made an active decision to be there. And I find that to be really helpful to me on energy level, on commitment, on also making sure that I'm constantly learning. Because if I'm just sitting in the job doing the job on a regular basis, then I'm not pulling up and saying, okay, well, what's next that I need to learn, that I need to grow into? So for me at, at Bain and 10 years at Bloomreach, it's an annual sit down. My least favorite thing in the world is to write a resume. So I make myself sit down, kind of write that out and do a reflection of Where have I been in, and what do I feel like is missing there? What do I want to grow into?
1: And specifically, you're updating the resume from the last year of work. Is that right? Exactly. And is the intent a hey, if this year is it, and now I put a resume out for others to see, or is it more a forcing function for reflection that happens to be in the format of a resume?
0: definitely more of the internal forcing function reflection for me that happens to be in the form of the resume, not well formatted potentially, but it also serves as a way for me to then be able to communicate with whoever I'm working with at the time on how do I view the next year?
1: Yeah, I totally get that. I do a similar thing. Do you find that it helps you not think about all these other things when you've signed a mental contract with yourself for a year that you're like, look, like I made a deal with myself. It's one more year. Here's the things that I want to accomplish. I haven't accomplished those. It's almost like this is a value that I've created for me. This is a rule. Now, in order for me to like think or do anything else, I'm breaking that rule. Then it becomes much harder to break.
0: For me, it's two things. One is, yes, you've made that conscious decision. And with that conscious decision, you probably have a plan and a path. The thing you know you're going to accomplish and is going to contribute to the company, to yourself. And so it sets a pretty high bar, I think, for other opportunities that come in that are unknown to say, am I going to be able to accomplish that? But two, I think a lot of times we forget what we've done over that year right? At least for me, it's always about kind of what's the next challenge? What's the next thing I'm trying to work on? Where are we going from here? And it gives you a good opportunity to look back and say, oh, wait, actually, I did spend the last year building something. It's not always about the next latest problem. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes when we go and we look for those new opportunities, either we're unclear what we're trying to go to or... We haven't reflected back and seen actually how much have I grown in this role or in this company or in my career. And it's a good time to look back at that and say, oh, wait, actually isn't just about I'm doing the same thing that I was doing last year. Actually, we're moving
1: forward. Totally. I love that. So then you go to Bloomreach, 20 people, right?
0: Roughly. Yeah. About 20 people when I joined.
1: Raised the series B. They
0: just raised series B. Right before I joined.
1: How much revenue do you remember they were doing?
0: Single digit millions.
1: Okay. Pretty early Series B for 20 people is pretty early, right?
0: It was pretty early. Yeah, Yeah. right. You were all in the same room, right? Whole company.
1: Round sizes were different then, but that's early.
0: It was early staged, but...
1: But to be fair, 20 people doing single, call it five or more under 10, that's like pretty good. Actually, Series B is now they're getting done for far less than that.
0: It didn't feel as risky at the time, I would say, because my favorite ratio at the time was there were more customers than there were employees.
1: Mm.
0: And it was very clear there was a lot behind the technology. Yeah. There were a lot of different places that the company could go with the technology. In retrospect, seeing where where we are now, I mean, yes, it, it was a, a smaller company and, and carried more risk.
1: Yeah, we live in a different world. I remember I had the CEO of Cloudflare on and I was asking him similar set of questions. How'd you find it? And how much revenue? Probably doing about the same three, four, five-ish million, maybe a little bit more. And I said, Chris, how'd you know this was a good one? And he said, the phones wouldn't stop ringing and nobody was answering them. And to think now at a Series B, I'm sure we would love to be doing a Series B with that problem presenting itself, not preempting it before they've even flipped over any cards in like 30 seconds, what does Bloomreach do?
0: Yeah, so Bloomreach does digital commerce experiences. Mm -hmm. So many of the leading brands that you know in e-commerce and retail, their sites are powered by Bloomreach. So we have a search and merchandising set of capabilities, a content management, and we have a customer data platform. And so Bloomreach powers roughly 25% of all e-commerce in the US and in the UK.
1: I try not to talk about COVID too much in this show because I hope people can listen to it in five years and not have to think about this whole thing. But this business rapidly, rapidly accelerated because of COVID. So like the use case that I've seen given is that online groceries increased 300%, which is like a use case that's pretty good for you. And so overnight you have three X'd, would it be fair to say that demand three immediately?
0: Demand from investment in e-commerce. Yeah. Absolutely. From a consumer perspective, what people were doing online and then filtering down to our customers, the businesses, absolutely changed overnight. I mean, it changed from where you've got retailers where a portion of their business is e-commerce to overnight, all of their business is e-commerce and they're leveraging the stores, at least for a period of time when we we all went into lockdowns. You went to 100 percent online, mm-hmm. and that was the only way that you could get orders in, because people couldn't go into the stores unless you were an essential business like grocery, yep. where people could go in, but of course, there was a lot of lack of knowledge of what the world was going to look like, so it was hesitant. Mm. People were hesitant to go in. So it overnight it changed buying habits. I would say, you know, mm. things that grocery shopping, every week at least once a week, right? Mm -hmm. You're going in, it's almost a ritual. That got broken very quickly and people changed their habits to going online and looking for things that I think before, maybe they would run a quick trip to the store or they would wait, right? And do more of a shopping trip. Now they're looking for more online. And it does, it changed demand. It changed how we thought about consumer experiences. How easy is it for my customers to find what I'm looking for? How easy is it for them to get it? So all the way from the start of I'm looking for something to it showing up in my door, I need to think about that whole entire experience. Mm
1: -hmm. So now I will play the tape forward to where it is now, and then I'm going to start picking apart every piece of this business because... It honestly reminds me a lot of, well, the businesses that we work with all the time. It's really cool to see your journey through that. You have now raised $400 million on 900 valuations. That This is all public and right, I think, I hope. And investors include a lot of the good ones, Lightspeed, NEA, Bain Capital, Battery, Salesforce Ventures, et cetera. Bloomreach just announced, I think in January or earlier this year, that you have surpassed $100 million of ARR and achieved more than $100 million of new ARR growth year to date right? So you doubled year over year and the company has added over a hundred new logos serving over a hundred eight hundred and fifty 850 brands. Is that all right? That's all right. Okay. Yeah. Why is this company not valued at a higher multiple? Why does it feel like it's undervalued to me? Like it's doing a hundred million in ARR valued at nine X current revenue. I don't know. If I could buy stock in it, I will. Like you're a lot smarter than me. What do you think is the explanation for that? Like, usually we're seeing companies 10 to 20 X forward valuation, like next year's revenue valuation. And that might even be conservative. I don't know, that was one of the things that struck me.
0: Right, well, first I love that that's how you're viewing it. And I love that that's the question you're asking, right? You definitely never want to be asked the question, like, seriously, why do you have that valuation? I don't see it. Yeah. You're asking me about the growth rates and the current valuation and why isn't it greater. And I think that from our perspective, The valuation's great. It's a market indicator for the company and definitely forward-looking, we see higher growth. And that's a great question on valuations. For us, it's about running a responsible business for our customers. And so while valuation is something that's talked about, I think, a lot in the market, it does sway with the market Mm in whichever Data points the market's looking at, how forward looking, what forward looking growth rates are you talking about? And for us, it's really about building a generational, long term, sustainable company that our customers can rely on, that we can be delivering to them the value and the products and to their end consumers that they're looking for. And so we're very focused on making sure that we're working with as many customers as we can and building those long term valuable products for them.
1: Wow, that was a very good and political answer. So the other thought that I had in the valuation piece was, well, I guess question one, and you don't have to answer this, but do you think you could have raised at a higher valuation? I suspect you could have. Question number two is, isn't it kind of refreshing and nice? And I think now you own the number, you own revenue amongst other things, right? And you've owned the number before. The problem with raising these giant rounds, if you're the CRO, now that's your number. Expectations in the business have elevated significantly. And you need to grow into this giant number. Realistic or not, you need to grow into it. And so you're going to get stuck with a number that justifies that valuation. Whether or not you think you can achieve it, a lot of the times, it creates a lot of, I would think, like unnecessary tension and pressure on the business, certainly on the revenue organization, to grow into that. I don't know. must have been kind of nice.
0: It's definitely nice to be in that position, but I think it's also good to be in a position where there are multiple different growth avenues that the company can go down. So the number that people are expecting is there, but it's reasonable, achievable, and there are many different ways that I firmly believe the company can get there. It's about prioritizing those. Mm -hmm. The thing that I really enjoy about working at Ridge, about the leadership team, is it's a very collaborative group of people where it's while we have to achieve the number, you're never in a silo achieving that number. It's the fundamental reason actually I joined Bloomreach 10 years ago and I've stayed is there isn't that number, yes, is on one person, but it's not. It's on every single one of us to make sure that we're working with our customers as effectively as possible, that we're launching new products and innovation. And so to have it be on one person is a lot, Mm. but I don't feel like that is actually how we operate. And having that Strong culture, that set of values that are defined at the beginning and are not swayed when you are trying to meet a number, when market conditions dramatically change, like COVID, and and you're worried about your employees and are they going to be safe. I think that having that culture that we constantly discuss, that set of values that we're aligned on, helps in all of those situations.
1: Were there any? reps or AEs when you joined the company?
0: There were, there were about three AEs when I joined the company.
1: Okay. I ask because a lot of the time, the first or second AEs, your role was product manager officially. They feel a lot like a product manager. A lot of the time, it's important to drive revenue, but it's also really important to inform product direction and strategic direction of the business. And the best people that are the most qualified to generally do that are those who are talking to customers. So was that your first glimpse of like, I'm a product manager, but man, I seem to be talking to customers a lot to help us inform our product strategy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at that stage of company, definitely, whether you're an AE, a product manager, you're the CEO, or you're an engineer, you're talking to customers. At 20 people, at 30 people, all of you, wear all the hats, which makes it really interesting and exciting. And you get to have a broader view of your job, right? It crosses all boundaries. And actually, one of the AEs who's there when I joined is actually still at Bloomreach. Um, And what I loved is he does now, and, and he did at the time, can see the whole business, right? He can see across. I'm working with this customer, I'm closing this deal, but what is it gonna mean for the first three months, the first six months? Have I aligned this in a way that they're gonna get the most value possible? And then by the way, I really need this particular case that the product doesn't cover, this corner case, this use case, and I can work with product on that. And so in the earlier days, I definitely think you're an AE, but you're an AE product manager, part customer success manager, part support, and you're covering all those dimensions.
1: So you did that for a year and the official launch happened after that year of the company, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Correct. We came out of stealth mode.
1: Okay. But you're already doing year. revenue, et cetera. Right. You officially launched the company. Did, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, but then you got promoted to head of mobile search, nav and personalization and created two new product lines. Is that Correct.
0: Correct. So we had, before we came out of stealth mode and and when we came out of stealth mode, we had one product, which was our search engine optimization product. And then shortly thereafter is when we decided to create the second product, our search and merchandising capabilities. And
1: what was the business impetus for that? Was product one stagnating? You know, like one of our companies rippling, they have 10 product lines, they have 10. And it wasn't because number one was not doing well. It was from the get-go, they knew that they were going to do full stack HR and onboarding for small companies. Exactly. How'd you feel about it?
0: It really gets to, do you have a clear North star on Mm -hmm. your product vision and what you're going to deliver to customers? And so definitely at the time, the SEO product was doing really, really well. So this was not a no-brainer to divert attention in the company to go build a second product that was a bet at the time, right? You've got a stable base of customers. You've got new customers onboarding all the time. The product is actually doing really well. And so it was a a discussion point of, is now the right time to build a second product? Is now the time that we're gonna divert attention that we could be putting on the first business line? But by having that North Star product vision that we're about commerce experiences and those shouldn't be in a silo, You walk into a store, it's not a siloed experience. You've got someone who's helping you create that experience. Why online is your customer acquisition siloed from your online experience, siloed from someone checking out, siloed from the stuff showing up in the door. And so having that North Star meant that we knew we were making a decision that gets us further along that path. And the decision point really does become kind of more of now or later, not is this the right thing for us to be
1: doing. And was product line one in double digits-ish yet? Or was it approaching that?
0: It was approaching double digits. It was approaching that. Yeah.
1: Okay, so almost call it doubled from when you started revenue to when you decided to do product number two. Yeah. Okay. And when you decided on product number two, was it similar to like, all right, what's the corn storage market size? What was the question that you asked in order to work backwards to solve it?
0: Well, when we decided to build the second product line, the time I I was working with customers on the SEO product, I was Mm -hmm. an individual contributor working to make sure they got onboarded, that the product worked as needed and how was SEO traffic going. And so when we started to do the second product, we really started from a standpoint of the, actually the founders, the the two co-founders at the time are the ones who came in and said, okay, we're about driving digital experiences, not only customer acquisition, but a single view for that customer, a seamless experience. Where's the next place we could have the biggest impact in that? And site search and merchandising, I mean, the vast majority of sites revenue runs through that experience. The vast majority, when someone knows what they want, that's when they're going in, in the search bar and, and putting in and they're giving you exactly that intent of what they're looking for. And so that is the one of the places you can have the biggest impact mm-hmm. and go after that. So the first question we were trying to figure out was, for end consumers, where's the first place or the best place you can have the most impact? At the time, additionally, what was going on in the market, mobile was becoming more and more a bigger portion of traffic, which meant your digital experiences were now on a completely different format, right? They were smaller screen sizes. And so I'm coupling, how do I get the customer the best seamless experience personalized for them with, and by the way, I can only show them four products at a Mm -hmm. time. Whereas before on desktop, I needed to kind of be right because I've got a whole page. I can show them stuff. They can scan really quickly. I just had to be kind of right there. On mobile, you better be right. I've got four slots to show someone. Personalization matters so much more in that context.
1: And so by the time you graduated from that job two-ish years later, it was a two or three product company.
0: So we were a two-product company at the time, and the whole idea of that was to put myself out of a job. The whole idea was for us to create this bet, to build this product into a business line that we could merge in with the rest of the company, and then I would go on and do something else because that job's over. That job merges into the rest of the company.
1: And so you did that, seems like, successfully. Product was working. And then they said, okay, Christy, you are now the chief customer officer. Is that, well, maybe not so simply, but something (laughs) like that?
0: Not so simple. I mean, it's definitely a conversation of what do I enjoy to do? What does the company need? I really, through the entire couple years, enjoyed working with customers. That whole place where the dream of the product and the dream during the sales cycle meets and you have to combine those two to get the customer the most value out of the product, that's where I wanted to play. And so we brought together actually a couple of different teams from our onboarding team to our customer success managers to support and said, okay, we're gonna pull these together to create the customer success function.
1: And so in the CCO job, was it always post-sales or did it include pre-sales? What was your remit or scope of responsibility?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, I think, for all companies, because while customer success is post-sales, it really needs to start during the sales cycle. You need to give the customer confidence that they're working with a team that's going to help them achieve the very dream that they're looking at in that sales cycle. And so we're spending more and more time looking at how do we invest in the pre-sales cycle with customer success so they can see exactly how they're going to get that first win, how we're going to get them there as fast as possible, and then continue through adoption, through innovation, through support with them.
1: And then two years into your role as the chief customer officer, you decided you would add product line number three, which was HIPPO?
0: Correct. Our content management system.
1: Was that your decision? Were you really involved in that?
0: I was not Involved in the decision of—
1: You were involved in the making it happen.
0: I was involved in bringing the companies together, perspective of it. That decision really aligned again to that North Star vision of where did we want to see our product go and what aspects of a joint seamless customer experience do we need to have And having that content management system that, you know, you've got the algorithms, how do you visually Mm -hmm. display that? How do I change the visual display with customers and have that front-end experience? That made that decision much easier to look at and say, okay, this is how it plays into that North Star product vision.
1: And you did that CCO role for six years. Would it be fair to say that product line number two almost doubled the revenue of the business? Did it do as much as product line number one did by the time you were in the CCO role? So you felt pretty good about like, okay, we can add another product. We can deliver it to market. We can do a pretty good job. One of the things that we talked about that the way you said it made me laugh was that the complaint of all Harvard Business School case studies is that they're all success stories. And even now the story that we're painting is up and to the right. You add a product, it adds revenue. You add another product, it adds more revenue. I guess I'm really curious because I've seen this breakdown in our portfolio. What was the difference with 20, 30 people and one product and now what, three, 400 people and many, many products? What was the thing that you least expected that you were least prepared for that was the first stumbling point for you?
0: Yeah, so if I were to say when I joined the company, what I thought we would look like at 100 million or what I thought the job would look like, I think the thing that, I didn't anticipate is that when you're a Series A or Series B company, you're a Series A, Series B company. When you're a Series D, Series E public company, if you are constantly innovating and, and you're truly a product technology company, you have a Series A company in your Series D, Series E company, and you have a Series B company in your Series D and Series E. It is a constant cycle of what's my latest bet? how am I investing in that latest bet? Am I treating it like a series A company or am I doing series A within series D and trying to pretend like it's a series D company? You need to constantly be adding in those bets. And and by definition with those bets, some of them are gonna fail, right? If it's not truly a bet, if it's a sure thing. And so I think, you know, Early on in the time at Bloomerge or when you're at a smaller startup phase, you think, you know, well, I'm going to take this and we're going to grow. And at some point, we're going to be a larger company. And so we're going to maybe be expanding. We're we're not going to be doing as many bets. To truly be an innovative product company, you have to constantly be coming up with those bets, which means that you start to split your attention and you have to split your criteria of what success means. It's not set of top line numbers. Mm -hmm. You have to double click into there and say, well, yes, I've got my top line set of numbers. I have to meet those. But my bet that I'm treating like a series A company has to have a different success criteria, different set of investment and be treated differently than the rest of the company.
1: This is such an unfair question that you probably can't answer truthfully, but maybe you will. Are you nostalgic of the early days? Now you're like the existential threat of, do we have a business is gone. And when I work with our early stage portfolio and we hit the validation moments that we've made it, it's obviously important to do that. You can't be nostalgic unless you're on the other side of the mountain, if you will, unless you've reached the summit. But I get nostalgic of the early days. Most of our portfolio misses that feeling because it just brings you so close together. And the whole point of this shit, like it's hard. You don't do this because it's easy. You do this because it's difficult and it's a worthy mission to do with other people in the boat together. Do you miss those early days?
0: So truthfully, I have to answer yes and no. So the yes nostalgic part is the person you're sitting right next to is probably like a quarter of the company, right? It's super small. You're all in a room together. And the nostalgia of all being in that room together, making joint decisions, That is always gonna be there because as you get bigger, it's harder to have as deep of connections with everyone in the company. The reason I say no is because actually when I was joining Bloomreach, I threw all of the previous criteria out the window, Mm -hmm. which was an established company really actually at the stage we're at now Now at at Blue Ridge. And so, you know, now we're at the stage that is exactly the type of company I had been looking to join. Threw it all out the window because I met an amazing leadership team with an amazing product. And that experience, I think, led to deeper relationships, led to seeing that journey of bets fail along the way, of bets succeeding, but now we're at the stage where we get to make bigger bets.
1: Yeah, okay, A couple more questions, and I know I gotta get you out of here. So, a couple things. One, did every product that you tried, like you have what, four products today?
0: We have three product lines today between the early days SEO search products, the content management system, and the CDP.
1: So CDP, content management search, were those your first three? No. Okay. What happened in between? And then tell me about like, okay, you're feeling good about yourself. You have some mojo after number one, maybe number one and two work. What did that feel like when, well, obviously you don't have more product lines. Like what what happened to those? And then what did it feel like internally?
0: Yeah, actually. So we had product number one, products two and three did not work. And search was actually product four.
1: Were products two and three under your purview?
0: No, they were not, not. under.
1: If, if they were, you know. Right. No, <laughs>
0: that's, that's funny. No, it that gets to product market fit, right? And really experimenting with some early customers, trying to drive that product market fit, and, and identifying it's not there. But I think the nice thing about those early days is, you, if you're doing those small, quick experiments, then you are going to have multiple products that don't get very far, but you also aren't investing a ton. And so, how do I come up with these? experiments, really, on I have an idea for a product line, let me invest a little bit, let me see if there's a product market fit, Mm. let me work with particular customers Mm -hmm. maybe to try to drive that, and if it can't work and I need to kill that, we haven't lost as much investment or velocity Mm. along the way. But definitely, I mean, at that size of company, it's why I laughed when you said, was that under your purview? Everything's under everyone's purview when you're at that size, right? You're trying to find customers to work with, to experiment. We had a very small team of people, which I was on, that managed those customers. So you're literally working with the customers to try to find, okay, do you want to try out this new product that we're trying I'm going to sit with you, try to make it as successful as possible. It's early days. And you're finding those, those customers who will innovate with you.
1: And then on a somewhat related note, at some point, I think when you were CCO, you're an SEO company. Google changed the SEO algorithms. Is that right? Correct. First of all, like I had Mar Brandt, the CRO of AppsFlyer, on. And it was happening in the midst of all of the stuff with your phone and asking the question, do you want them to access your data and all these things? And, you know, they did some workarounds, but it was definitely like a kind of a panic moment for them, especially when you own a number. What'd that feel like for y'all?
0: Yeah, so we were super early in the search days. So we had just built the second product for search, we had one customer. We weren't even live yet. We were integrating with them, working through building this with them, and and we were not live. So and this, you own search. Yes, I I owned search. It was me and a team of about five of the best engineers I've ever worked mm-hmm. with. They were amazing and a fantastic team. And so there was kind of like the six of us sitting there working with a customer, knowing that in a few months we're about to go live with them and and see can we get this to work? Yeah. And then from there, can we build a, a business out of this? And yes, Google, as they do on a fairly frequent basis, you know, they they look and say, what do we need to do to, to give the best experience to our end consumers? And okay, I'm going to make this algorithm change. Yeah. Whether it's from a search quality perspective or it is from what's going on in the market perspective, they're constantly making those changes. And so for us yes, it impacted the results of our product and and our business Mm. rather quickly. It accelerated the need for us to say, okay, well, how quickly can we build a business with the search line? But it doesn't negate the need for the SEO product in its entirety at all. You're still doing customer acquisition. You're still trying to drive search engine results. So it just changes really Mm. the way you think about that the way that you're going about driving that. But definitely when you're in a business that is really kind of dictated by a, an outside market set of conditions, it drives what you want to think about from how quickly you're going to innovate and how diversified you're going to be in your product set.
1: What's the one thing that you had wished you'd known about being a COO before you joined the C? What's the one thing that if you could have prepared for this job, knowing what you know now, what would you have done? What skills would you have built? What would you have prepped for?
0: That's a a great question. And I think that along the way, I've been very fortunate to have some amazing mentors who prepared me well, that it's very hard to look back now and say, well, what did I wish I built along the way? Or what did I know? For example, our, our CEO Raj, I remember very early on he would sit down and, and we'd talk about my career and he's like, you know, where do you want to head? And, and I said, well, you know, at some point I really want to be COO of a technology company, whether that's, you know, in a year, five years, I don't know yet, but that's the journey I'm looking at. I really enjoy operating and taking those ideas that a founder or a CEO has and And making them happen. And so I knew that that was the role that felt right to me for a long-term career path. And he said, okay, well, we really need to get you different experiences actually in the company. You can't be an effective COO if you've never been a product manager. If you've never worked closely with engineering, this is a product company. And so that was part of moving into when we decided to build search. Okay, can I own that? Can I come in and work on that product and help build something. And then once that's built, can we turn it into a business line? Can you help sell? Can you sit down and sell this product alongside with our sales teams or by yourself, right? And so going on that journey of of seeing the different pieces, I think it's really important that there are many different levers in a company that you can be trying to pull. You need to really understand each of your colleagues' roles and jobs so you can help them be as effective as possible?
1: Yeah, I think there's a pattern and I'm doing more of revenue operators that have gone on to do more type episodes. And there's a pattern that continues to emerge, which is breadth, not depth. Dan Shapiro is a great example. Managing a Huge! I didn't even know the superlative for how big the thousands of people business at LinkedIn. And then Jeff Weiner comes to him one day and says, "You're, you know, what do you want to do?" He says a similar answer, and Jeff says, "You're not good enough. You got to learn product." And uh, he goes and is an individual contributor for it's an insane story for the product for the product organization. So I do think there's something to be said for breadth, not depth. Okay, I gotta have to wrap this. What does grit mean to you?
0: It's a great question because I think that. I think there are multiple variables to grit going back to the math conversation because, and I think a lot of people focus on grit is really, for me, part of it is agency and the other variables time. So agency for me with grit is really about the fact that for each of these questions that you're approaching or these problems you're trying to solve, what are the various different ways that I can have agency? I've got that wall in front of me. I can go under it. I can go around it. I can go over it. I can chisel through it. Mm-hmm. But time is the other, I think, really important variable because you know, we really want to get to results or get to that problem set quickly. But time is on our side for that. The market can change. Time can allow us to see the problem or, or the issue that we're facing from various different angles or get new perspective. And so it is one of those where I think to have grit to dive into those problems and not not run away from them, to find ways to solve them. Sometimes the right answer is to do nothing in the moment. Sometimes the right answer is to walk away. And that's the hardest one, I think, of all of it.
1: It kind of reminds me of the conversation we had about you staying at Bain and doing nothing to some degree and showing some resolve and, and longevity. Actually, that's a great answer, very unique. Are you hiring? Is Bloom hiring? What are you hiring for? Are there any key roles that you would like to shout out that you're hiring for? Someone listens to you, listens to this, is inspired to go take this undervalued business to the next level.
0: Absolutely. So we're hiring across the board, sales, marketing, customer success, product, engineering. I don't know if I can call out one role or Definitely the team will say, oh, you You're need to mention, yeah, finance, we're we're hiring in finance. Yeah, so yeah. every, every function. Whoever is, you need to uh, curry favor with, <laughs> just, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I think it is a phenomenal culture, high growth business. So if you want to come in and be able to contribute while the company is still this size, this is a perfect opportunity.
1: Christy, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.